I think what this all boils down to is getting really crystal clear on what you want to do with your career, right? And I found it easier to determine what I want to do five years out or 10 years out than as opposed to what I want to do next. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Dr. Iman Abuzaid, to our show today. Iman is the co-founder and CEO of Incredible Health, a digital platform that helps streamline the hiring process for nurses and recruiting hospitals. Iman was heavily influenced to take risks from a young age, as she saw both of her grandfathers make an impact through business in Sudan. However, entrepreneurship seemed to skip a generation as her father became an ENT surgeon and her brother along with herself, followed in his footsteps. However, halfway through med school, Iman realized she didn't want to be a practitioner and wanted to take her skills she learned in med school to the corporate world. After getting her MBA and some consulting experience under her belt, Iman decided to leave Silicon Valley to make her own mark on the world. However, after a failed venture with her first startup, Iman quickly pivoted and that's when Incredible Health was born. To date, Incredible Health is used by hundreds of hospitals across the U.S. and has raised $17 million from top-tier firms like Andreessen Horowitz to fuel its mission. We'll chat with Iman on how she navigated multiple career pivots from originally wanting to be a medical doctor to even coming up with a new business idea after her first one didn't succeed, how she approached the fundraising process and brought in reputable investors, and key advice she gives all founders when they're looking to pivot from their corporate job to follow their passions. Welcome to the show, Iman. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Such an honor. And I'm very fascinated about your background. I love women who've done many career changes and you know, you've know you pivoted quite a bit even now as an entrepreneur. So I'm really looking forward to everybody learning more about your story. And on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. You have quite the multicultural upbringing. You're Sudanese, you were born in Saudi and then moved to the UK. I'd love to hear more about your childhood and what life was like for you growing up. Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm originally from Sudan, both sides of my family, and I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. I've lived in several countries, including the UAE and the UK, moved to the US when I was 24 years old. I guess in terms of growing up, both my grandfathers were entrepreneurs. They were very risk-taking. <laughs> and so that really has influenced uh, like my attitude in life of just, hey, let's just go for it. <laughs> you know, what's the worst that could happen? And I also grew up in a family that's like kind of hardcore medical family. Like my dad's a surgeon, my two older brothers are surgeons. And so my exposure to healthcare is pretty extensive too, growing up as well. Yeah. And it's interesting because you've mentioned your grandfathers on both sides were very entrepreneurial, but it kind of skipped a generation because like you said, your father, all your brothers, I believe they're all surgeons and in the medical field. So did you always have that itch to be an entrepreneur? I did, honestly. Like I have this uh, opinion and it's, it's, a, it's just an opinion. It's a value. <laughs> you know, the epitome of what you can do with a business career, at least, is to be an entrepreneur. And I just think it's just the coolest thing, right? Because uh, when you're an entrepreneur, A, you have, you have some measure of control over what's going on, but like, it's really about the impact. In the case of 
of me specifically, there's an opportunity here to define an entirely new category or change an entire industry or change the way things are done. And that's the exciting thing about entrepreneurship and, and you know, and especially when you start layering in things like software. Yeah, absolutely. And before you kind of really went deep into the world of entrepreneurship, you follow the path of your family, right? You ended up going to med school. And it's interesting because I believe you were a few years in, or maybe even initially, you realized you didn't want to practice being a doctor, right? Once you graduated. So what was that experience like for you? Did you ever consider dropping out or how was that conversation with your family? Because I'm sure they wanted you to also follow their footsteps and be a doctor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, dropping out is an absolute no-go. I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, I come from an immigrant family, I'm sure. The, anyone who's an immigrant in the audience, uh, particularly from some of those Eastern cultures, can probably resonate. There was absolutely no option to drop out, right? So during medical school, one-on-one patient care, it's great. And I think you can have a fantastic career as a doctor, uh, not just in the U.S., but also in other parts of the world. But th- the limitation for me is the impact and the size of the impact. I really wanted to better understand how entire health systems will run or how entire or the health system of an entire country uh, operates and try to have impact at that scale as opposed to just one-on-one patient care, right? And again, this is just me. Like, it it is a fantastic career. I'm not trying to, like, (laughs) get other doctors out there to not work as doctors or anything like that. And I wanted to have larger impact. So towards the end of medical school, really started to explore, like, other paths, right? And um I went into management consulting first after medical school. And that's really when I worked in hospital operations and hospital strategy and just got more exposed to honestly the business side of healthcare. That was why I pursued an MBA next at Wharton. And that gave me exposure to lots of different fields and industries, as well as classmates from all kinds of functional areas and and, and different industries and from all over the world too. And, And that's really where I really solidified like, okay, I got to go to the Bay Area. (laughs) I need to go to Silicon Valley. I need to pursue a software startup, all all, all of that. That's where it all all, like crystallized for me. And, you know, it's interesting because as you, and I want to dig into that a little bit because it all makes sense now, but as you were going through the process, it was, you were very curious and still wanted to learn and you pivoted, went to business school, changed industries. But going back a little bit, there's so many people listening who want to take a big career jump and they might not necessarily have the support either of their family or friends or society. When you told your family that you wanted to go a different direction and not become a doctor, was that a tough conversation or were they generally supportive of you going down the business route of your career? So it really depends on who. My dad was not particularly supportive. (laughs) He was like, what are you talking about? It was like I was speaking a foreign language. Everyone else, my mom, my siblings were very, very supportive of it. People come from different mindsets, different backgrounds. At the end of the day, like, hey, a career is 30, 40 years long. We should probably try to do what motivates us and what's going to keep us going for 30, 40 years and keep us interested and engaged. Exactly. Well, it's good to hear that your siblings and your mother were supportive. And I'm sure now your dad is your biggest supporter. Oh, my dad's all over it. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Sounds like my dad. He like, he like WhatsApps or he like messages or like press, you know, whenever we get a new press and things like that. So like, yeah, he's, he's very proud. Funny. It must be like an immigrant dad thing. I mean, even with me, every time I've done a career (laughs) jump, he's like, are you sure? I don't, I'm not supportive of that. And then once I'm in it, he's all talking about me and different things and functions. So it's great to hear. Everyone means well, right? It's it's just, people have different perception of risk, right? And for me, you know, staying in a career that you don't really want to do or that, or, or, you know, that you're not less interested in, that is 
in my mind, one of the biggest risks of all, right? Whereas others are like, no, it's very low risk because it's a, you know, it's stable. And so really it's just about perceptions and, and where people are coming from. Exactly. And one thing you've mentioned in another interview is you feel pretty comfortable with risk. And I know you talk about your influence of your grandfathers and how they were risky. Where do you think that really came from? I mean, were you always a risk taker as a child or, you know, I'd love to learn more about the origins of that because I think there's a lot of people who should lean into more into risk, especially women in the entrepreneurship world. You hear all these kinds of different sayings and manners like YOLO and so on. But, you know, like I think what that this all boils down to is getting really crystal clear on what you want to do with your career, right? And I found it easier to determine what I want to do five years out or 10 years out than as opposed to what I want to do next. So I'll, I'll go through an example of that. So I knew at age 24, coming out of medical school, by the time I'm 30, I want to start my own company. Right. And then let's work backwards from there. What are the different steps to get there? It was easier for me to determine that goal five or 10 years out and then work backwards than it was to be like, okay, what should I do next? And that's usually the recommendation or advice I give to others. It really is about where you want to end up. What is the final state or the final goal? And in my case, you know, yeah, like back to my opinion, I think entrepreneurship is the coolest thing ever. So, (laughs) so it would be a huge risk for me to not do that, actually. Yeah. And I actually, I'm so glad you brought that up. I love the fact that you think in five to 10 years, because I think about that as well, as I look at my future and I feel like it kind of makes me feel less anxious about the right next step. Like as long as you know, you're going towards the right mission and goal, you're less hard on yourself about, okay, how much progress have I made in three months, six months, you know, let's look back in a year. And I think you make a bigger impact a few years into it versus like a next month. Absolutely. And then the other benefit of it is it acknowledges that there's multiple paths to that goal, right? I chose one path to get to that goal. There's another, you know, a thousand iterations of that, that others might, might pursue in order to achieve that same goal. And I know just kind of going through your career before you started Incredible Health, you mentioned, you know, after business school, you went into consulting and then you got, went and got your MBA to get more exposure because I think you still wanted to learn more about business and still figure out what you wanted to do. I'd love to hear more about your experience at business school, because obviously we hear a lot of people who didn't go down that path or went down that path. So I'd love to hear what an impact it made on your life. You know, when it comes to some of these top tier business schools, whether it's Wharton or whatever, some of the others, right? It's absolutely not a requirement. And so I, get, I don't want anyone to, to, to take away from this, like, oh my God, I have to do my MBA. It's, it's, it's optional, right? For me specifically, there were like several different benefits. Number one is like, I just gained some more skills and knowledge. For me, the, what I use the most day to day now as an entrepreneur is whatever I learned from my negotiations class that I had taken with Adam Grant. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah. Negotiations I probably use every other day, whether it's with employees or customers or investors or whoever, right? The basics of finance and accounting, very, very helpful to know that <laughs> when you're running a business that is high growth and you got to manage things like cash and so on. Definitely some knowledge and skills gained there. The other major benefit that I got is the brand, right? And unfortunately, we live in a world where brands or stamps matter, right? And so when I am going into a venture capital pitch, right, or even a customer pitch or whatever it is, and they see the stamp of approval, Wharton, right, or whatever, maybe Ms. McKinsey, whatever it was, you know, that that adds some level of credibility and that, and that helps. I mean, as unfair as that is, it does, it does help. And then the third area is just the network. 
I think for those that go to business school, if you're pursuing entrepreneurship, the entrepreneurs coming out of my class leverage that network the most, right? And, and, and we use it in so many different ways because the, the alumni of that school have gone to so many different places. Some of them are running hospitals and health systems. So that helps from a sales standpoint or from getting customers. They have gone on to become functional leaders in product or operations or whatever. And so that has helped from a hiring standpoint. And so, so there's like several ways that I, I use that network. Now, do you have to invest two years of your life and I don't know how, much, how many dollars to get that? No, of course not. There's other ways to get those benefits. But for me, that was the big benefit for me. Absolutely. And I think you mentioned something, especially as I've, you know, first time entrepreneur jumping into this world a year ago, I've always been about networking. I've talked a lot about this podcast, how every job I've even gotten wasn't on a job board. It was through meeting someone and having them hire me. But especially as an entrepreneur, it's so important to have that tribe around you because it can be really lonely and you're always jumping into the unknown and just having mentors and people around you who've either gone through that or are going through that is so key. So whether you go to business school or listen to podcasts or reach out to people on LinkedIn, Instagram, I think is so, so critical. And we're going to get to, I'm excited to talk more about how you utilize your network when it came to fundraising in a little bit. Yeah. To, to your point, I mean, I've had individuals I've spoken to who literally saved me six to 12 months of my time, <laughs> right? Just for just the right, it was just the right high quality advice at the time that just like saved me from making, I don't know how many mistakes game changing. And it's great that you're even willing to ask because we've had some entrepreneurs come on the podcast that, you know, have gone to Ivy league schools and they always felt like they always had to figure it out themselves. And after a few burns, they realized, okay, now I know I need to ask for help and I don't know everything. So it's great to hear you're very much like that, even from the early days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one thing I'd love to talk more about. So after business school, you actually moved to SF, like you mentioned, to get just head deep into the tech space and startup world. Why was that move important for you? And can you share more about just your experience there? Coming out of business school, medical school, management consulting, I didn't know anything about software. I didn't know anything about what it takes to create software products. I didn't even know much about tech, to be honest. And I was like, okay, let me, let me go join an early stage startup as an employee. Ideally, in, from, in my case, I did product, right? to get exposure and to gain some of these skills. And so I joined an early stage healthcare technology company and I was there for a couple of years leading product. And that's really where I learned to work with software engineers, with designers, with data scientists and so on, what it takes to launch a product and grow a business. That was a, a critical experience for me. I gained skills. And again, I gained a, a different kind of network, you know, a network of software engineers. So for example, my co-founder for Incredible Health, Rome Portlock is our chief technology officer here. He was the lead engineer there, right? So, you know, we got to really work together as employees at this early stage startup before leaving to start our own. Yeah, I love that. And I think coming from the corporate world, as I did as well, and working in a startup, I think is the best bridge to leading your own company because it just allows you to immerse yourself in a high growth company and learn what it takes to build a startup on someone else's dime versus your own, because it's so tough to do it by yourself. So it's great to see that you also made that transition that way as well. And one thing I'd love to talk about, so you were there, you're running product, enjoyed your job. At what point did you want to leave to pursue this new startup idea? I know at that stage, it wasn't necessarily incredible help. So I'd love to kind of hear about that first business of yours and what pushed you to quit full-time and focus on that idea. Yeah. So this is going to sound kind of crazy and arbitrary, but I was waiting for my savings account to hit a certain number before I left. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so it was like, I don't know, for, for me, it happened to be two years or whatever it was working there. Uh, that's kind of what triggered me to leave. 
you're absolutely right. Like we pursued an idea at first that just we discovered after the fact, after, you know, 10 or 11 months of work just wasn't working and several mistakes done there. And, and we ended up pivoting or, or, or switching our idea to what is, what is today incredible health. Going back before the pivot, I mean, that's tough. 10, 11 months in, you quit your job, you're living off your savings and you're realizing the idea that you guys both wanted to pursue isn't really gaining traction. I mean, was that tough for you at the time or how did that even feel? Did you, did you regret making the decision to leave your job? <laughs> it was hands down probably the most stressful point of the whole entrepreneurial journey so far. When you're working on something for 10, 11 months and it's just not growing, that is really, really stressful. <laughs> you know, one thing I learned in hindsight is that whether it's me or I even say this to other founders, like we're not, we're not. It's really important for founders to invest heavily in ideation before execution. It's like a ship leaving a harbor. You want to make sure the ship is pointed in the right direction before you depart, right? Because if you're pointed in the wrong direction, you're going to end up somewhere very random that you don't want to be. And so it's just really important to really invest a heavy amount of time and intense amount of effort in ideation and vetting your idea or vetting on an entire set of ideas before fully pursuing it. Exactly. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think as entrepreneurs, we're all impatient just to get going, right? I mean, even for my idea, it came about last summer, August of 2020. We haven't even launched yet. And I'm like, was so tough on myself. I wanted to launch earlier this year, now the timeline's pushing, but to your point, it's so important to vet the idea before you put all your resources in a product, you know, whether it's software or a physical product to get that going. So any way you can test different ideas, whether it's focus groups or, you know, doing like a minimal viable product where you're not spending all your money just to prove it out. I think that is brilliant. Yeah. I think the work is even earlier than that. Both creating an MVP is execution for me. I'm th- I'm talking about things like you know, take your idea and apply three key filters to it. Hey, what's the market size? What's the competition? And what is your unique insight? You know, market size, are you pursuing a large enough market, right? For competition, is this like highly, highly competitive and it's going to be really hard to break out, right? And then unique insight. What have you come up with that's at least 10x better than what's already out there? Because that's how you're going to cut through the noise, right? And even doing that, I guess, more strategic work before building anything, before writing a single line of code or, you know, creating a single product, right, is really important. And then, you know, once you have ideas that have gone through, they have passed all three filters, then sure, go deep on customer research, go deep on market research and really understand a set of ideas. And then, you know, once you've done all that work, then sure, like then you've ended up with something that at least is partially vetted before you start building. Yeah, no, that's actually really helpful the way you thought about it. And I'm curious. So, you know, once you decided at that 10, 11 mark that this business isn't really going where you both expected it to go, what were your next steps to really shift and pivot? Because at that stage, I know your life took a completely different turn. Yeah. So at this point, we are in the NFX like accelerator. Unfortunately, they don't have an accelerator anymore, but their their NFX is is a very popular seed in Series A fund here in the Bay Area. Did you know you wanted to go down the accelerator route? Like once you realized, okay, we need to pivot, we need to figure it out. How did you know that was a right next step for you? I think the top accelerators are worth it. If it's not the top three, then I don't don't recommend it at all. The benefit of some of these top accelerators is like, A, you get A, more of a network, right? Like networking is never ending, right? You get more of a network, you get support with things like ideation as an example, and you get exposure to more entrepreneurs, right? It's a lot less lonely because you're working with other CEOs or around you too. 
And so for us, you know, at NFX, you know, we're working with James Courier and Pete Flint and Guy Weisleby, like they're the general partners there. We almost got to like incubate, you know, and, and, and figure, figure out this, this pivot and the right idea and so on. And, you know, we ultimately arrived at incredible health. I mean, some, a lot of it, the reason we came up with the incredible health idea is like, look, a lot of my family members and friends are doctors and surgeons understaffing is an issue in healthcare. At the same time, you know, Rome siblings are, you know, several family members are nurses, they're experienced and they're qualified. And it was still taking them two, three months at least to get their next job. And we're like, this doesn't make any sense, right? Like there's a huge disconnect here. There has to be a better way. And that's how that idea even ended up like on the list, right? Among 90 other ideas too. And so really we went through like a pretty thorough vetting and ideation process before landing on this one. And I'm curious to dig deeper into that because I believe two weeks into the accelerator, you guys were just going through different ideas. So what did that even look like? Were you guys just in a room together for like 48 hours, nonstop figuring out different ideas or what was that process like for you? Cause it's so tough to come up with a viable business that you're excited about that you have skills to really pursue. Yeah. Me and Rome were working on a full time on the ideation for several weeks. And the other crazy thing is like, he had his first kid around that time too. So that added another layer of intensity to it. Wow. But yeah, we meet up every day in our co-working space or whatever it was and just kind of work on ideation. I guess I'm trying to emphasize the intensity of it. Like ideation is an intense endeavor, but absolutely worth it. And it's interesting, similar to what you're talking about. I quit my job before I even had a business idea, which I don't recommend for everybody, but similar to you, I saved, I kind of was methodical about it, but it really took a few months of just thinking (laughs) to really even understand, you know, what business do I want to pursue? Does it make sense? Like your three elements that you discussed. So I think having that, whether it's the discipline and the strategy behind it is really important to just come up with whatever that business idea is. And once you came up with incredible health in the early days, I'm sure it was tough to even get hospitals on board, right? As just on an idea. So how did you convince them to join your business and really test out the product? Because getting into hospitals where I would say, you know, pre-COVID are a lot more old school to implement and bring in technology. So was that difficult for you guys? Yeah, it's definitely challenging, but it all started with a unique insight, right? So back to the ideation for a moment, right? Like, Unique insights, what, what have you come up with that's at least 10x better than what's already out there? And because we were communicating a value proposition that was, we believed 10x better than what's already out there, and that can be faster, cheaper, whatever, whatever it is, right? Whatever dimension you, you choose, they were willing to try it out. They wanted to do it. And so that's probably the most important. Now, beyond the unique insight, it's, there's just an intense amount of hustle, right? At this point, we're, we're only two co-founders. I, gotta, I, I have to close our first health system in our case, demo day was like, you know, four weeks away and I got to close someone. I got to close an enterprise. And it was a matter of, in my case, cold calling and so on. Now, of course, since then, you know, I now have a sales team and I got a VP of sales and it's all like much more sophisticated at this point. And there's like a marketing machine and all this. But in the early days, it's just pure hustle. Did you have any proven metrics at the point? Because clearly when you're very early, you're still trying to get on, on board the nurses. And then you know, you're kind of like chicken in the egg scenario with your marketplace. So was it just someone taking a bet on you and your passion and just really loving the technology that you guys have built? The pain that the customers were feeling was so intense and combined with what we were proposing sounded so great that they were like, let's give this a go. 
I love that. And once you got the big client on board, I know a lot of startups, especially the first and second clients that they've had, they've had to behind the scenes struggle and make sure things work. I mean, what was that experience like for you when you signed your first hospital to come on board? Did you have the demand there for the nurses? I mean, what did that look like behind the scenes? Yeah, we were working on both sides of our marketplace at the same time. So like as far as the chicken and egg classic problem that comes up with the marketplaces, like it's like, sometimes the answer is like too bad. You just got to do both. You yeah. know? And that, that was basically what we had to do when you're building a two-sided marketplace, you know, and people talk about the classic chicken and egg problem. Unfortunately, sometimes you just got to get both. You got to get the both, the, in our case, both the employers and the talent. That's what we did right, right off the bat. And one of the things that really helped us in the early days was as two founders, we wrote down our values and our values are the operating system of the company and they're how we work together. And, you know, the vision of the company is to help healthcare professionals live better lives. The mission is to help them find and do their best work. And our number one value is customer obsession, right? So do whatever you can to delight customers. So from our very, our earliest days, when we closed those first one or two health systems, it was like, do whatever you can to make sure that this is delightful, not just for the employers, but also for the talent. And if that means, you know, things need to be done manually behind the scenes and you do that. If, 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 the, if you're trying to write code as quickly as you can to automate, you're trying to create a great user experience as well as great behind the scenes operations in order to deliver on an amazing, delightful experience. And that has always been like one of our North Stars throughout building incredible health so far. I think that's really powerful because I'm sure, you know, especially in the early days or even as a high growth business, even to this day, you can be pulled in so many different aspects and having that North star of like, okay, let's focus on customer obsession. Are we working on everything that aligns with that? I'm sure was really helpful, especially when you're so busy, just trying to onboard two big clients with only two co-founders involved. Yeah. I mean, those early days were crazy. I mean, these were some of the biggest health systems in the country. And our team was tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny, like we're talking about four or five people, but we couldn't ha- create the perception that we were tiny. Right. And so it was just important that we had a, a really fantastic experience, no matter like whatever we could do to deliver on an amazing experience. And that's powerful. And I think any business, you know, that anyone's launching, whether it's in the tech industry, consumer space, I mean, it all can boil down to customer delight and experience. And that's something you can control heavily, especially in the early days. So you clearly close these two accounts. And I'm sure the next step for you would be to fundraise, really to close a proper seed round now that, you, now that you've proven out the model. You've talked about how those earliest meetings and conversations to raise capital were the hardest. I'd love to hear more about your fundraising journey and what that looked like for you guys? Incredible Health was founded and we started in 2017. And so between 2017 and 2019, we raised $17.2 million. And that was over two rounds, a seed round and a series A. So in terms of the seed round, which was, which was eventually led by James Joaquin at Obvious Ventures here in the Bay Area, there was definitely an intense fundraising process, right? And I really do perceive fundraising as a skill that has to be built and improved that the CEO you know, needs to own and get better at over time. And so it took about, in terms of process, 80 meetings or so to raise a $2 million, $2.4 million seed round. So lots of rejections, lots of no's. But honestly, that's how the system is designed. I mean, like, if you're trying to get the investors who are going to make a decision that's non-consensus and right, you know, uh, that means there's going to be a lot of no's because not everyone's going to understand what you're trying to achieve. But I see the responsibilities also on us as CEOs to clearly communicate a fantastic story and narrative. 
process matters in fundraising, but content matters just as much in fundraising. So what you're saying matters a ton, right? So you need, you must have a fantastic vision, a huge mission, a giant market opportunity, a compelling product that's differentiated and at least 10x better than what's already out there. And you don't necessarily have to have like a ton of traction. We had very little, very, very little. And it, it was important for me to pitch what our company is going to be in 2030, as opposed to being what it's going to be in, you know, 2017 or whenever it was I was pitching. I did spend an intense amount of time on getting the content correct. And then every single meeting that you do is a learning opportunity. It's not just about getting yes and no. Even when you get no, what have you learned from that, right? Like remain intellectually curious, get some feedback out of them. Like what's resonating with them? What's not? Like what makes sense? What doesn't? And then immediately go back and iterate, right? And so by the end, I was on like version, I don't know, 40, 50 of the deck. Because you just have to keep getting better between every meeting. And do you think it just, because I have many friends that are going through this process right now and they're deep into fundraising, they're getting a lot of no's. You hear so many people like yourself on the podcast that say, I hit 50, 90 no's and it's part of the process. But was it still tough for you to deal with that rejection or did you just go into the fundraising process knowing that that was what it's going to be like? I mean, look, rejection is something that every entrepreneur needs to get very accustomed to because the journey is not just about investor rejections. You will get customer rejections. You will even get employee rejections. For me personally, I think the employee ones hurt the most. <laughs> when I'm really trying to get someone to join the team and they, don't, and they don't end up joining, that's painful. Investor rejections, I'm like, ah, whatever, part of the process, right? Ben Horowitz wrote this, right? Like the most important part of the CEO's role is to manage your own psychology. And it's really important that you build really strong skill sets, mechanisms, tactics, whatever it is to deal with things like rejection mentally. And I, I have several, I have several tactics, you know, like I have a support group of other CEOs that I'm constantly interacting with. Cause like, I'm like, Hey, turns out that they're dealing with the same challenges as me. I'm not alone. Right. I have a therapist. I think mental health is critical when you're a CEO or a founder, because it is a very tough journey. I have enrolled in different CEO groups and things like that. That's been really helpful. You know, I've watched YouTube videos of Serena Williams and Beyonce and Oprah. These are like some of my idols, even from other industries. And just seeing how they talk and how they answer questions, like just their confidence and how they talk about their competition and so on. is like, there's so much to learn there. There's so many different, I guess, hacks that you can do to manage your psychology. And I think that's helpful because I agree. I feel like the most successful people, whether it's entrepreneurship or whether it's an athlete, it all goes to your belief in the psychology you have. Because like you said, every day is not a walk in the park, but as a leader, just managing your mental health is what's going to get you to really push through those tough times. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up and whether it's therapy, like you mentioned, and leaning into other CEOs, I I've have found that personally helpful. They're going through the same stuff and feeling like you're not alone and not crazy. It's just very comforting. So that's, that's really helpful. And, you know, you mentioned a few pivots that you did along the journey of fundraising and getting feedback when you would get the nose. And you mentioned, you know, fundraising is really a skill that a CEO needs to get very good at. Is there any other things looking back that you can talk about, you know, whether it's the way you present your story or just any details there, any skills that you learned in that two years of fundraising? First, I just wanted to say that, like, I didn't mean to say that, that all CEOs need to learn how to fundraise. If you do go down the route of pursuing external investors, which is only one of many ways to finance your company, it's a skill to master. And there's a very small percentage 
percentage of companies in the U.S. that truly need, you know, venture capital as an example. There are many, many other ways to finance your business. And so like, you know, this is just the one path that we, we, we chose. And it was really correlated with our ambition. The ultimate goal here is to IPO. You know, it's a huge market. It's a huge opportunity. We're ben- therefore, we're venture backed, right? In terms of just the skills, explaining the very first couple of slides in terms of how you explain your vision is just really, really important. Okay, so I'll give two examples. I can easily say that Incredible Health is a career marketplace for healthcare workers. That's the, that is the definition of what the, what the company does. Or I can say Incredible Health is a career marketplace for healthcare workers. And our plan is to be the category-defining market-leading company in healthcare labor, right? That sound, the latter sounds way more ambitious, bigger, more aspirational, and so on. And that, that's what it takes. You know, that's what it takes to not just with investors, but even with employees and customers and so on. It's like, hey, like this is, this is about more than just like some website, you know, or some app, <laughs> you know, there's a big vision here that we're pursuing. And that's like, you know, some of the nuance that has to get adjusted while you're, while you're fundraising. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. We've had just what comes to mind, Heidi Zak, she's a founder of Third Love. And she said one thing that she learned through the fundraising process was just how she needs to even think bigger and communicate that. So kind of correlates with what you're saying and the way you should even describe your your vision and your mission is just, you know, how can you share it so it's aspirational? It shows, you know, what impact you're making and the big vision that you have. So I think that's that's huge. Absolutely. And there's a tactical thing going on here too. Like understand your audience, right? If it's a venture capital investor or even an angel investor, they're looking for 10X, 20X, 100X their money, right? They don't get that when the founder is an ambitious and pursuing something huge. It's on you. The onus is the responsibility is on you to communicate that huge ambition to match their ambition and what they have to do in their jobs. Yep. And to a point you mentioned earlier, if you decide to go down that route, right, everybody can build businesses in different ways. And it doesn't mean just because you don't go down the path of venture capital, you're not successful. And I think that's something that I want to make sure we talk more about because some people think that's the only option for you when it's not. So I'm glad you also brought that up. One thing that you've also talked a lot about is, you know, you really pivoted your career, you pivoted your passions, you got very crystal clear on what really drives you now. And you talk about how you have a framework that you like to share with a lot of people in that sense. Is that something that you could share with us? So so the first piece of it is what I said earlier, like, what's your five-year goal, 10-year goal? Determine that and then work backwards. This framework probably only applies to business careers, to to be honest with you. You can only optimize one of three things. It's either cash, lifestyle, or skills and learning, right? So we'll go through each each with examples. Cash, you want to optimize cash, risk adjusted, go into investment banking, go into hedge funds. Those are very high paying jobs. Like go do that. You know, you're going to optimize cash. You'll probably compromise lifestyle and you'll compromise skills and learning, but you'll get the cash, right? Let's say you're optimizing lifestyle. If you want to optimize lifestyle, go work at Google. You know, go or Procter and Gamble or like whatever. These, these large public companies, you don't really have to work very hard. You know, the job is nine to five, but really it's actually 11 to three. And just enjoy your lifestyle. You'll probably be compromising a little bit on cash relative to your finance colleagues, right? And you will be compromising on skills and learning because everything is really slow there. And you're probably, if you're, let's say you're a product manager there, you'll be lucky if you're shipping one product a year. And then there comes skills and learning. And the way to optimize skills and learning, and that's like the most amount of skills and learning in the shortest period of time, that's the definition of an optimization, right, is startups. 
either starting your own or joining an earlier stage startup because the scopes of responsibility are going to be huge. Your autonomy is going to be huge and you have to operate very rapidly, which means you get to do a lot, right? So you, you, instead of shipping just one product a year, you might end up shipping 12 things, different things a year, right? Or more. And yes, risk adjusted, you will be compromising on cash, right? Because you're, you know, you're doing this exchange of cash versus equity, right? Sometimes. And then you're absolutely compromising on lifestyle. Startups are, are a lot of work. You know, your weekdays usually belong to the company, right? And so be really clear about which of those three you're truly trying to optimize. Where people get in trouble is they're trying to optimize two out of the three or all three. There is no job that gets you all three. There is no job that even gets you two out of the three. So decide what matters best for you at this stage of your life and go do that. I think that's really powerful. And like you said, I'm sure in different stages, it will change. I mean, in the beginning of my career, it was all cash oriented, you know, got that job in finance, was doing well. And as I've gotten older, I've been optimizing more on skills and traits. And, you know, I'm not making immediate cash, but, you know, the goal is the reward at some point will uh, compensate me. But the fact that you're always learning and growing is probably more exciting and more fulfilling than making that cash, which is something I realized a few years into my career. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no, there's no judgment here. Like I'm like you, I pursue skills and learning. That's what I optimize for. Right. So whereas others, for example, like uh, young parents with kids, they may need to optimize lifestyle, right. Just given their stage, maybe. Right. And then others, you know, due to their financial situation have to optimize cash. Right. So it's really, there's no judgment. Just like, just be really clear about what matters most to you. Yeah. And I'm sure that will just help you kind of align with the right opportunity, whether it's the right job or the right pivot that you want to do. I think that's really powerful. You know, one thing I also want to talk about, as we've mentioned, you know, entrepreneurship is not easy. And I'm sure in the world of COVID, so much has changed. Is there any specific hardship or challenge that you can share with us, whether it was in the early days of maybe not closing a deal or spending money on something that didn't you know, end up providing that much value or even something you went through last year that you can share with our listeners? So when COVID happened, there were a lot of adjustments to our product roadmap, honestly, in order to deliver on customer obsession and delightful experiences, given the fact that like both sides of our marketplace, whether it was the employers or the hospitals and health systems or the talent, which is the nurses, they are both dramatically impacted by the pandemic. So there were several things that we did. We launched continuing education for every single nurse in the country. That's continuing the education is something that nurses and other healthcare workers eventually need to activate and renew their licenses. And we offer it for free out of pocket directly in the incredible health app. And, you know, historically nurses have had to pay probably in total $250 million out of pocket every year on continuing education. And we made it completely free. Another is like we released something called the pandemic hiring suite, which was, that was for the employers, right? And a lot of things have to change in hiring and in our product in order to enable very rapid hiring. So we now enable hiring in 12 days or less. The industry average is 82 days for experienced and specialized nurses. And that results in at least $2 million saved per facility every single year. By more rapidly hiring permanent nurses, the hospital and health systems gets to save uh, millions of dollars in travel nurse costs and overtime costs, right? And so things there included things like automated interview scheduling, uh, remote interviewing options, tons of data analytics to help them rapidly improve their processes. So that's like, you know, an example of our pandemic hiring suite. Another example that really adjusts in terms of COVID is releasing key reports, right? Everyone wanted to know, like both sides of our workplace, like what is going on with the nurses? What's going on with the hospitals? And it was so hard. I mean, it still is in a lot of ways to get your hands on like 
trusted information during the pandemic. And we did a very big study on uh, the, how COVID-19 was impacting nurses at the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020. And then we did it again a year later here in March 2021, like what happened a year later. And there were lots of key findings there. And in terms of the, the, the recent one, you know, the one year on, a fascinating statistic that came out was, you know, there's a third of nurses that despite being eligible for the vaccine are electing not to take the vaccine yet, uh, which is fascinating for me. Another is the biggest jump in nurse salaries has happened in the last 12 months. And it's gone up by about 10%, uh, their annual salaries. And then signing bonuses specifically have gone up by another 10% too. And so these are some of the key reports and, and, and metrics that we were able to establish and provide to our customers and, and, to, the, and to the industry overall and the market overall. And that's accessible on our website, incrediblehealth.com to everyone, to the public. And it seems like given what has happened with the pandemic and COVID, it seems like you guys pivoted really quickly to bring all these services. I mean, going back to March of last year, did you have an idea that we would enter this world or it seems like you're very crystal clear on the pivots and the product. So what did that look like when COVID hit? Were you aware it was going to be the way it is today? I'm a Twitter user. I, I love Twitter. It's my favorite, probably my favorite social network. In January and February, I had already been following MDs, public health experts, epidemiologists all over the world. So I had a sense even by mid-January, I'm like, this is going to be huge in, in the U.S. This, this impact is going to be huge in the U.S. And so I had already like, we kind of started preparing even before, you know, the first surges started and the, and the first impact hit in March. And so that, that was helpful. The other thing is just the need, like you mentioned, the need for rapid, rapid adjustment. One of our values, I talked about our customer obsession value. Another one of our values is speed. You know, move as quickly as humanly possible. And I really do think one of the only competitive advantages you have as a startup is you can move faster than anyone else, faster than any incumbents out there and faster than any big companies and so on. And so like we really implemented that, you know, took that value to heart in terms of like our rapid adjustments that needed to happen. Yeah, no, it's definitely very impressive to just kind of hear how quickly you guys pivoted and just how much value you're bringing to both the nurses and the hospitals with what you're up to. And one thing I would love to ask all of our guests, and we talked a bit about this when you were speaking about your framework when it came to pivoting and pursuing different careers is, you know, wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this stage in your life, what does wealth mean to you? It means impact. I have the privilege of pursuing an opportunity right now where we are defining a new category, where we are leading a market with our marketplace technology and healthcare labor and dramatically changing how hiring is done and also changing not just, you know, not just how healthcare workers find their jobs, but how they manage their careers. And, you know, healthcare workers are underappreciated. They are overworked, whether, you know, they're a nurse or any other type of healthcare worker. And we just want to be the one company service out there that's giving them the most delightful experience. And to me, that is, that's wealth, that, that, that impact and impact an entire group of workers or an entire industry, and we're becoming a category d definer or market leader. That's impact. That's wealth. And it's beautiful to see just the passion you have for this mission and how you're bringing it to life through the business and the growth you guys are seeing. It's really inspiring. So I appreciate you, Iman, for joining us and sharing more about your beautiful journey. And I'm excited to see more about what Incredible Health is up to to come. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been fun.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even better, sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on our new episodes or join our private community, go to BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. And if you have any feedback or just want to say hi, reach out to me on Instagram at Yasmin K. Nori, or feel free to email me at Yasmin at BehindHerEmpire.com. Before we wrap up, I want to take a moment to acknowledge this incredible community of women listening. There are so many of you that are working incredibly hard to build your own empire, and I want to celebrate your success. So occasionally, at the end of our episodes, I'll be highlighting an inspiring story from one of our community members. Let's listen in to this week's featured entrepreneur. Hey, everyone. I'm Amira Pollock, founder and CEO at Struct Club. We are democratizing fitness for instructors who are all about matching music to movement through an app. My spark for starting up Struck Club came in grad school. I was getting my MBA and teaching spin classes in the basement of my school gym. And what I found teaching was that when you choreograph a workout, you have to create from scratch as well as borrow material. There are trainings and certifications. You go and pay for and experience other trainers' classes to get ideas. And then you create playlists and notes and memorize material. But you only finally get paid to show up and teach. And I I just really felt like there was an opportunity to really productize and economize these ideas. And so just got started over a weekend with my partner. We cut our first app. It was just a really basic app to tag playlists with exercises. And that's how we got started. My biggest challenge, honestly, when I think about it, building an empire really takes constant self-re-energizing and that's super hard. It's not a one challenge that you can fix and overcome. It's just every every day or every week. And it's so hard because things will just, they're just going to find their way at at some point to come at your time or they'll come at your energy or or even just put your energy to the test or at, at least that's how I feel and at the end of the day it's it's up to me it's up to us when we're down there's just nobody else who's going to be responsible for coming to you know pick you back up and it'll happen again and again and again and so a few things that help for sure are things like sleep and nutrients i take my daily vitamins i love to exercise of course um, it's my form of meditation any inspiring books or or music or podcasts just like this one gratitude practice is so important and quality times with just the peeps in my life that revive my spark. But really, I'm not going to lie. It's ongoing work. My words for anybody listening to this right now to encourage them is that just whatever you're doing, whatever problem you're solving, just please, please, please don't forget people, especially now, need you. They need you to fight for them. So Whatever your good fight is, keep fighting the good fight. And that's just another thing here that re-energizes my spark anytime I'm feeling down. If you want to connect, find me at Amira Pollock. 
and at Struct Club on Instagram. I'll see you there. Bye.